Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top-shelf equipment and designers for broadcast, concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know that this is your most important event. It is their goal to make you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to the LD at Large podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting. I'm here today with Julian Hodgson's director and lighting designer at Apex Lighting Design. We decided that since we have so much downtime, it would be a great time to start uh, reaching out to all of our best friends and hanging out on, on the podcast. Uh, I'm at home on, in lockdown or self-isolation. Normally, I do this when my kids are at school, but they are all home now and they are running around the house. So if you hear any crazy dings or bangs or bumps. That's my kids running around my house. And I am decided to reach out to Julian Hodgson because he is also on lockdown in Madrid right now, which is a little Barcelona. more... Oh, I'm sorry. You're in Barcelona. Yeah. And uh, you're in a little bit more of a heavy zone than I am here in Ontario, Canada. We, we're we're pretty pretty relaxed here. We don't, we don't have a lot of active cases going on, but I, I believe you you're in a little bit more of a of a hot situation. You want to talk about that? Yeah. Well, may as well get the elephant out of the room to start with. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the wife and I decided to move to Barcelona about a year ago from Brussels. <clears throat> um, and we thought, you know, weather's great, climate's great, the the cultural kind of diversity here and and, and, and stuff is, is off the charts. The architecture is beautiful. Um, you know, it's going to be it's going to be amazing. Um, year later, somebody eats a tree dwelling animal in China and gets a nasty cold from it, and then what? Well, what are we eight eight nine weeks into this, and it's just exploded. Um, and certainly in Spain, anyway, most of the cases seem to be up towards Madrid. But uh, here in Barcelona, there were four towns just to the north, and they have literally been locked down like a scene out of outbreak or contagion. Uh, the police have uh, they, they've closed the motorways going in and out of those towns, and the prime minister, sorry, the president of Spain has basically enacted almost a, a lockdown of the whole of Spain. So you're only meant to go out if you're going to your work or you're going to get food or you're going to a pharmacy. If you're not doing any of those things and you're fine to be out and about, now I don't think it's going to happen just yet, but there's talk of them fining you 400 euros on the spot. If wow. you're outside without any, excuse, without any good excuse. Now, obviously, um, you know, the, the Barcelona region, so Catalonia, which is the region that Barcelona is in, 
everybody knows about the the independence kind of referendums and all that kind of stuff. So they have a devolved a devolved government here, and the premier of the devolved government here was actually requesting that the president of Spain enact uh, a ban on all flights in and out of Barcelona. So even if I wanted to go home to visit the family, or I, you know, had work in one of the very few countries that doesn't have issues with COVID-19, I wouldn't be able to get there. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's, it's touching everybody in this industry and it's touching them in a really bad way. Um, and the fact that work has just gone. Um, and it's getting to the stage now where some of us can't even leave, leave our homes, which is... I never, ever thought I'd see that. It's like something out of a Hollywood movie. It really is. I've, I've never seen anything like it. Um, the one amazing thing that I have seen here, though, in Barcelona and I think a few places in Spain, uh, somebody on, on some kind of social group at one point said, at nine o'clock, everybody go out on your balcony and just do almost like a flash mob applause for the, the people that are working in the medical industry. So for the past three nights here in Barcelona, it's been kind of spooky at first. And then when you pop your head out your door and you just see the balconies of, of all the houses around about and everybody's out there cheering and clapping and whistling and playing music. It's a, it's a real sense of camaraderie. But and it's amazing to see, but it's it's quite sad that it's taken something like this to actually, you know, to, to affect that. So we'll get through it. Um, you guys are all isolated, but all still together. And you, I mean, you just can't, you can't stop us from showing our solidarity, I guess. You can't, no. And, you know, doing it on your, you know, show, showing a bit of solidarity or, or clapping or stuff on your balcony is not going to be construed as breaking the, Breaking the quarantine, but I think it's things like that that we really need, that we <clears throat> really, really need right now. Because things aren't looking great, you know. Um, a lot of people are saying, you know, it's not as bad as what you think it is. I think it is. It's pretty bad. It's, pretty it's bad. a disease that we don't have immunity to. Yeah. Um, so it's not like a common cold. It's not like influenza. It's a completely disease that the human body is just not used to. So I've literally been sitting at home working over old WYSIBIG drawings, um, reading up on some tips and tricks and learning new bits of software, uh, diversifying pretty much. You know, I, I downloaded Dialux years ago and then thought, mm, you know, <clears throat> some of the jobs I've had in the past have been with actual design houses who do all manner of lighting design. And I have done all manner of lighting design in the past, from conference rooms up to concerts. But it's the only real thing I can do because as designers and people in this industry, we hate nothing more than sitting on our backside doing oh, nothing. Oh, man. You know? Yeah, I would um, imagine Barcelona and our industry together, we are known for large gatherings. And if we can't gather over 50 people then there's really no reason to light anything. So we're just, yeah. 
you know, peak season, Barcelona gets up to, I don't know, probably nine, ten million people with the tourists. So, yeah, well, Rumble Street alone has got to be 20,000 well, people. Yeah, but, but there's another thing, you know, out of everything that I would have expected Barcelona to be locked down on, I would have thought it would have been terrorism. Because Barcelona has already been, you know, as as main other main cities in the world, Barcelona was the whole Rambla attack. Um, of all my days, I never thought it would be a virus. Kind of knocks us off our block of thinking that we're the top of the food chain, doesn't it? It does. It does a bit. Um, and I'm I'm actually in a risk group. I mean, I got diagnosed diabetic last year, so. Uh, I'm in the second highest risk group. So I am literally, whenever I'm getting deliveries to the door, I'm getting them to leave it on the step, um, wait until they walk away, then I'll go and get the bag, dump it in the kitchen, go and wash my hands, um, and then, you know, open up the bags with a pair of scissors or, or something like that. It's it's pretty crazy to, to, to think that of this age and technology and, pharmaceuticals and you know just just the, the human species has has come so far in a hundred years yet something so primitive can absolutely knock us off our feet one would think that somebody who has been all over the world like you would be <laughs> more prepared for something like you would think that i i like to think of myself as well traveled mm. and worldly traveled but i mean you've been to some places that could have all sorts of these things. And even you are, you're not immune to something like this. I mean, uh, Oh God, no, no. <clears throat> yeah. But, but saying that I was never a traveler before the age of 31, 32. I'd never been on tour. I'd never really wanted to go anywhere else. Um, <clears throat> I'd always been in the UK. Um, doing work. But I think I think that has a lot to do with them upbringing. Being Scottish, you kind of don't care. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, you know, the, the, the Scottish people in Scotland as a, as a country is not the healthiest of countries to start with. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, when I, I mean, the first place I went to from the UK was Dubai, and that was for about six months, and then left Dubai because <clears throat> it just wasn't for me. Um, left Dubai went what, drew, what drew you to Dubai? I got offered a job there um, I mean, come on what, what draws anyone to Dubai? Absolutely it's, it's, it's not the culture It's not the scenery It's the money Yeah, um, it's definitely not the drink I got offered, uh, Well, <laughs> you'd, you'd actually be surprised <laughs> Which we'll come to later um, But yeah, I went to Dubai had a holiday in Thailand in between uh, that. Didn't work out in Dubai. Went back home for maybe a couple of months. And then um, a few months before that, I'd, I had sent off my CV to Vietnam. I think one day, <clears throat> it was with the partner I was with at the time, we wanted to move over to the to the kind of Southeast Asia and, and kind of do work there. I sent the CV ages before that never heard anything and then literally once I left Dubai got back home um, I got an email from one of the, the the companies in Vietnam that I had 
uh, applied to. And he said, yeah, we've got a job for you. Come over. The money wasn't great, but the bonuses were spectacular. And as you'll find out shortly, it's, it, it doesn't work like that there anyway. So I basically hopped on a plane, took two suitcases, and uh, buggered off to Vietnam for four years. Wow. What did you yeah. end up doing there? Exactly what I'm doing now. <laughs> it's it's really strange. Um, you know, you, you, for the old timers, you talk about Vietnam, the first thing they say is, you know, call me bastards, the war, blah, blah, blah. You speak to the young ones and they go, oh, I'd love to go backpacking there. And I am in neither of those categories. <laughs> I'm as far removed, you know, <laughs> if the sight of a large camping rucksack to me is a nightmare on straps, basically. It's the last thing I want to do. And on the other hand, the last thing I wanted to do was to move to a country that was authoritarian. But, um, and, and it was a shock when I got off that plane in uh, Noi Bai, Hanoi Airport. Um, the first thing that hit me was the heat, the humidity, and the smell. The smell is a smell I will never forget. And it was a smell of burning rice paddies. Yep. Um, it was uh, it was brutal. <laughs> the first few nights, I will admit, I nearly cried myself to sleep. I thought, what the hell am I doing? And then I just kind of assimilated into the life. I just kind of broke myself in, um, and and had some of the some of the best years of my life there. It was it was really strange, but also on the other hand, some of the most frustrating times in my personal life and and professional career. You know, it's when people say things are different. Oh, they're different. Certainly in Vietnam, it's it's something that no one can prepare you for. Certainly on a professional level, it's, it's, it's nothing that you can prepare for. Unless you're a stoner or <laughs> you wear vest tops and shorts and sandals. And I do none of those. So, yeah. People ask me all the time what it's like to, to work in different places. And when I, talk, when mm. I think of places like Europe and I think of Australia and New Zealand... Mm pretty similar to North America. There's really not too much difference. But when I talk mm. about going to Asia, it is a, it's a different world. It is they do everything yeah. differently and I would imagine you had a lot to assimilate to. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, the one amazing thing about that kind of culture over there in Southeast Asia, well, I didn't do too much work in Thailand or, or Philippines or any of the countries around there, but certainly Vietnam is probably one of the most extreme, untouched by Western method countries you could go to. Yeah. Because they're fiercely independent. Um, and I'll put it out there now, they don't hate the Americans at all, just in case people are worrying or are, are, are wondering. Um the dollar is king in Vietnam. There, there were more transactions done, kind of higher grade trans- transactions, say over two thousand dollars or whatever, done in dollar than the local currency, which is dong. 
an unfortunate name for a currency, but the uh, the jokes can run for ages and ages when you're talking about Vietnamese dong. You know, <laughs> it's a small currency, ha ha ha, that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> it's it's lovely in the way that it's virtually untouched by Western methods, but at the same time, it's horrific that it was untouched by Western methods. Mm. Health and safety is a lot better now, but when I was there, how long have I been away there now? Uh, 14, so five years ago when I left, it was in a pretty bad place. And I think a few places, you know, a few few areas, it is, it is quite bad. Um, but the work ethic is put it this way if you're going along the road in Hanoi and they're digging up the road they're not digging it up with a pneumatic drill they're digging it up with a long steel bit of sharpened rebar it's manual labour so these folks in Vietnam work bloody hard you know and you can never take that away from them at all because it's that socialist well communism kind of mentality where people must have jobs and you know instead of three people digging up a, a bit of road they've got 20. Um, and it's the same in, in every industry including the events industry. Uh, a show that's maybe got say 20 moving heads on it, a bit of trust would we, we could easily do that with probably maybe two techs uh, and, and a few stagehands and we'd get that set up in a couple of hours. Um, in Vietnam, that kind of thing takes all night and they've got 20 guys doing it. And that's just because that's the way they've, used, that's the way they've always been used to doing it. Right. Um, and labor's cheap. Right. Labour is cheap. You know, I a lot of the guys I was working with, I was working with a company over there for a while and then went freelance. Um, a lot of the, the, the techs over there, and they are very resourceful. I've seen repairs made to moving lights where I've went, don't even consider switching that on, it's not going to work. And boom, you know, it works. <laughs> you, know, but, you know, there's that joke in the Western world there. The only thing you need to repair that light is a bit of gaffer tape, some chewing gum, and a matchstick. Yep. Over in Vietnam, it's the same, but probably you know a bit of bamboo. And I'm I'm not joking. I, I have seen slivers of bamboo jammed into um, proximity switches and stuff like that just to keep them, you know, keep them going. It's it's insane. Um, but a lot of the guys over there, you're lucky if their wages were two hundred dollars a month. Wow, you know, and I and I I felt <coughs> when the guys, you know, I I was basically going over there and doing a job for salaried a thousand dollars a month, and then I got little bonuses for shows and stuff. <clears throat> but the bonuses for the shows added up to three times what the salary was, and in Vietnam, you know, if you're earning a thousand dollars a month, fifteen hundred dollars a month, you're considered upper class. Because everyday things are so cheap. Um, as long as you eat the local food, as long as you you know go to the local hangouts, you can easily have a really good night out for twenty dollars. 
and not remember what you did that night. Um, so, you know, packets of cigarettes, they're a dollar over in Vietnam. So all the, it's, it's kind of like all the things that are good for you are really cheap. All the things that are bad for you are really expensive. Or sorry, no, the other way. All the things that are bad for you are really cheap. All the things that are good for you are really expensive. And that, that's <laughs> kind of the way it is over there. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, some of the some of the, the shows that I've seen, or some of the productions I've seen before my experience in Vietnam, and the fact that essentially I was trapped there, I made a promise to myself that I wasn't just going to go there last three months and go, bugger this, I'm not staying here, this looks really dodgy. I made a mindset that I was going to stay there and stick it out, and I'm glad I did. But some of the stuff you see, you know, normal techs from the Western world would walk into a venue, see the setup, and do an about turn and walk straight back out and ask to go on the plane. Um, wow. You know, Did you get a lot of Western uh, shows no. over there? Did you get a lot of... <clears throat> are not, they interested not, in that? It, it just started picking up um, about two years after I got there. Actually, one of the first shows that I did was uh, MTV Exit Festival in Needing Stadium, which is the largest stadium in, I think it's in Vietnam. They actually have, Needing Stadium is on the, the is, is within, I think, the new F1 circuit, which no doubt is going to be cancelled. Um, and that was MTV Exit, and they had... Uh, you're Canadian, aren't you, Chris? I'm American. I just live in Canada. American. Yeah. There's a band called Plan B, I think, um, or yes. Simple Plan. That's it. Simple, Simple Plan. Plan. And they they were playing there. Um, can't remember the LD's name. He he was he was a hoot. Um, and that was my second show in Vietnam. Um, and a, a lot of people are probably thinking, well, why did you get a job in Vietnam? Well, I was. And I hate to say, I hate to say it, and it is kind of playing the race card. I was the only white man doing what I was doing in Vietnam. <laughs> and if there's one thing the Vietnamese love, it's being able to say they've got a Western guy working on a show for them. It's almost like a status symbol for their show. Um, now, I could turn around and say it was nothing to do with that. It's because I'm amazing at what I do. <laughs> um, but I would say it's probably half and half. Okay. You, know, uh, you need to be able to know what you're doing for sure. Um, but certainly having having a Western yeah. a Western guy behind the desk or doing the plans, um, they were touting that. Vietnam was one of the only countries where my name my name was underneath the main act on the flyers and the promotional material. Really? Yeah. Wow. But that's they do a lot of that in Vietnam. When they put a show on, they'll on the flyers and the the promotional material. They'll tell you who the director is, who the sound man is, who the lighting chap is, who the video guy is, and that's what they do. Which I think we should be doing a lot more of that here in the Western world. Yeah. Um. um so yeah, slightly slightly embarrassing at times, and then 
Because the other thing is, my name stood out like a sore thumb. Because I don't know if you've ever seen the Vietnamese alphabet. It's Latin characters with loads of squiggles and lines and dots and dashes. Yeah. Because my name was just plain old simple English. So they probably couldn't even work out how how to say my name. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a highly. It was an experience I'll never forget. And it's With a hint experience. of pride, I would imagine when they when they printed that, they're like, "Look at that, we got we got Julian yeah. on our yeah. on our team." And and a lot of them couldn't even say my name right either. You know, it's it's a very um, it's a very different way of talking. Um, but yeah, it was certainly it was a country that you can see the potential in it for sure. And things like the F one is only going to make it better. You know, um, <clears throat> four out of five items that Samsung make are made in Vietnam. If you have a Samsung phone, fridge, TV, it's probably made in Vietnam. And a lot of people don't realize that some of the biggest factories of these large companies are in, are located in Vietnam. So the, I think the population, last time I checked, was 18 million. I think they're way over, they're way over 100 million now. And for the population centers, you know, it's it's only about a thousand kilometers long. It's very much shaped a bit, a bit kind of like Dubai. How Dubai is a principality of essentially the UAE. It's a very long sliver that goes along the coast, and of course, <clears throat> um, Vietnam has China at the top, Laos along the side, and then uh, Cambodia at the bottom. So it's it's kind of it's sea locked. <laughs> and and to, to put it in, a, in mild terms, but there's a lot of money in Vietnam. There's a lot of there's a lot of investment in Vietnam, um, and a lot of the people that I were that I that I was dealing with, who were clients, have now started up their own um, rental houses and are doing really well. And I, and I helped them do that as well. I, I helped I helped start up three companies in Vietnam. Um, Many a night, I sat at home in my apartment with um, rental desk, doing the translation from English into Vietnam, because they were just using, <laughs> you know, the, the local rental houses were just, there was no stock kind of logistics or, or way of keeping track of stock. Um, so yeah, I would introduce kind of software specifically for that kind of thing. You know, I mean, the guys... Were running about with barcode scanners, pretending to shoot each other because they just didn't know what they were to do with them. Um, <laughs> but it was nice to be able to help in just a little way of, of trying to say, right, well, if you want business from Western tours, you know, like the EDM thing, absolutely exploded in Vienna. Um, and there was a couple of shows that I was asked to consult on. And I said, right, well, we can get you this amount of kit from this supplier, but you'll have to take some from another supplier because there's no one supplier in Vietnam that has enough to do. You know, I mean, that typical EDM, outdoor shows, three, four hundred movers, you know, bucket load of LED, which they have in in skip loads in Vietnam. But when you're talking about getting fixtures in like very lights or clay packages or stuff, People do have it, but they only have 12 or 16 of each. So you have to try and logistically get all that together. Um, 
And when I say it takes two, three days to get a truck from Ho Chi Minh to Hanoi, it does take two or three days plus add on an extra day for the, the bribes that you have to give the, the, the local police and stuff to go through their, to go right. through their territory. Um, that just makes the brand name stuff that much more expensive too, right? Um, it, it did. Um, but a lot of the companies over there would they would get stuff in second hand anyway. So they would they would bolster their stock with second hand kit. Um, like there is an absolute bucket load of VL twenty five hundreds and three thousands in Vietnam, and probably only seventy percent of the stock throughout the nation of Vietnam works. The rest of it is just cannibalised. Um, so it, it does create problems. And of course, buying anything into Vietnam, you're subject to... At first, I thought what was a really pocket-lining thing by local authorities. So in Vietnam, on, on imported luxury goods such as a Mercedes or a BMW, there's a 245% import tax on that. That's so when you, see, when you see a Rolls Royce driving along the street, you can point at that and and with every degree of certainty, you can say to your friend, that's a million dollar car. And your mate goes, but it's only like $600,000. No, 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 that's, that's a million dollar car. Um, and it's the same with electrical goods. But you learn that you can negotiate with the customs at the airport. And obviously, I don't want to get anybody. I don't want to get anybody in trouble. But you can. The import rates can vary from five percent up to probably forty percent, depending on the customs agent that you deal with that day, and how much cash you've got in your pocket. Right. And that also goes for uh, rental equipment. I did one show, um, big EDM show, and I was actually in Dubai working for. I was I was doing a big show for the Sheikh. It was the 42nd anniversary of the UAE. So I couldn't physically go to do the show in uh, Ho Chi Minh. I sent one of my associates over to do that show, Opinion Programming. And they had built the stage, and it was a massive stage. It was about 150 feet wide, 90 foot high, loads of LED video, the usual kind of EDM thing. Um, but they had went with a supplier who was based in, was it Singapore? I think it was Singapore. And two, literally two nights before the show was due, due to open, there was eight 40-foot containers being held at the airport because the customs officials wanted more money. I so, guess if they have that power, they're going to they're gonna oh, use yeah. it if they can. And unfortunately, you know, I've had to pay the police money a couple of times, you know, just driving along the roads. Um, and because I didn't have a license on me, oh, okay, um, $400,000. Now, $400,000, let me put this in perspective, that's $20. Yeah. So that just gets used to get them a beer at the local beer hall or something like that. So there's times where you just go, okay, fine, fair enough. You know, always carry cash. Always carry cash with you in Vietnam because you never know when you're going to have to pay someone to do something. You were mostly designing different festivals 
in Vietnam. Is that, is that accurate? Um, festivals and um, kind of concert series. So there's, I have a couple of clients I still deal with now um, and also some of the top singers in Vietnam um, I deal a lot with. I, I actually did the lighting for Vietnam Voice back in 2012. And that's when I met a chap called Kok Chung, who was one of the judges and mentors. And Kok Chung is, he's one of the top kind of composers, songwriters in Vietnam, really cool guy. And we struck up a relationship and, and we still have a good relationship to this day. And he got me in to do a couple of concerts where he was obviously the, the, the composer. But he's very, he's very much kind of the Peter Gabriel of Southeast Asia. So he does, he does really cool music. And he got me in to do a couple of shows. Um, and it was nice for him just to turn around and say, dude, just do what you want, you know? This is music. Just blow me away. So I think one of the first private shows I did for him, or, or one of the first shows I did for him specifically, was in the Opera House, which is this 200-year-old French colonial opera house in Hanoi. And I had laser target mirrors all over the balconies, um, you know, LED transparent screens, um, and a place that can take three, 400 people. And it looked amazing, and, and he loved it, and, and it brought a new kind of dimension. To, to the shows that the locals were, were kind of used to. Um, again, a lot of the people that go to the concerts, like the first five rows in these concerts, people are paying three, $400 a ticket for them. So it's not the people who own, you know, the local beer hoys or the food trucks that are going to these shows. It's the people who are usually tied to the government in some way or they have a... a a government kind of cooperative company. Um, so they're spending a lot of money just to come to a show. Um, and the company that I worked for, that I that I first started with, they, they one of the main reasons they brought me over was they wanted me to teach the crews and stuff how to do how to do shows in the Western way, um, which is easier said than done because, as I say, they're very independent and they're quite proud of the way that we do stuff. Um, so it was very, very difficult to try and get them to look at things from another perspective. Um, trying to get quality control in there. You're um, trying to teach them how you do it and all the time <laughs> they want to show you how they do it. And it, they, I guess yeah, you kind of yeah. have to I do mean, a, a fair amount of give and take. There was, and that's where you have to learn. I think, firstly, patience, which I'm not known for, <laughs> but certainly, you know, yeah, there's been a few raised voices, but at the same time, they are so lovely that you just hug at the end of it and and just work it out, you know. Um, and plus, there's also a language barrier. I couldn't speak Vietnamese. They could speak kind of broken English. Um, but a lot, a lot was done just by pointing and nodding, you know. And and we 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 would get the system worked out where they would understand and I would understand what they were talking about, you know. Um, every hour it was, you know, that that kind of gesture you make towards your mouth, tilting your hand as though to say, "Let's go for a a coffee or a drink," and it's like, "No, 
<laughs> you know, it's been an hour since we've had one. Let's just keep going. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of times where people would just go, I'd just say, why is that not working? And they'd just kind of wave their hand. And the, the hand wave was just, don't know. <laughs> it, it was a universal don't know, you know. Um, but it was, it, it really was rewarding at times, you know, to, to have to build up some close relationships with some of the techs who ended up calling me the teacher, which is really kind of cool, but also creepy because every time I hear the teacher, it reminds me of the character that Ian McKellen played in Da Vinci Code. So <laughs> it was, it was certainly an experience that I'll never forget. And I'm really pleased to see how, how much they've progressed in the time that I've been away. And it's a lot of it really isn't down to me. A lot of it is down to the fact that there was a lot more Western productions coming through. So they had to kind of change their ways a bit to kind of conform to how we want our shows to look. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was interesting. Some of the best four years of my life some of the worst, darkest times as well. There was was a few times where I was violently ill. Um, and when you're 8,000 miles away from home, you really do feel alone, you know. Um, I went over there on my own. You had all new gut bacteria to discover. and <clears throat> Oh, 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 I discovered it all right. Um, they you discovered kind of build you. Up. Yeah, yeah, they discovered me and I discovered them. Um, but it's amazing. It's actually amazingly, it's amazing how quickly your body adapts. Um, you know, in Vietnam, the everything from the tail to the to the nose, literally. Yep. And some other animals that you just wouldn't normally eat. Um, so going veggie over there can be can be good, but you know, I hate to say it, hygiene is is not at the top of the list of things that people worry about in Vietnam just because they're used they're used to you know eating food on the street um, I mean some, some of the food over there is just insane insane um, you know I remember we were doing a filming for because I, I used to do Vietnam voice and Vietnam Idol and outside the, the studio you would always have the, the street songs and I remember, um, I kind of looked and was like, right, I'll have some pork, I'll have some noodles, and I'll have some of those eggs. And uh, Mia, who's a good friend of mine, who's kind of top sound engineer in Vietnam, he went, uh, are you sure you want those, dude? And I went, well, yeah, they look lovely. It was like little quail's eggs. It's like, all right, okay. So she puts the noodles in, in the bowl, uh, puts the pork in, a few herbs, and then pops these eggs that are still in their shells on top and I'm like no no I need you to cook these and they're like and they kind of just look at me blankly and then yeah I went come to the table I'll show you how you eat them (laughs) (laughs) they're like right okay sat down and of course in Vietnam and you you can look this up on Google the street bars and street cafes are plastic stools and tables but the plastic stools are for kids (laughs) because I'm six foot one. <laughs> so trying to sit down on a seat that's literally 12 inches from the ground can be 
<laughs> Put it this way, no matter how you do it, it's not graceful getting up or sitting down. So anyway, I set this table and Nia's like, right, so what we do is you, uh, you know, you take a, a you get your um, chopsticks, which I'm a dab hand at now, um, chopsticks, bit of, bit of pork, and then uh, you crack the egg open. And I was like, what, you eat this raw? And he went, no, it's not raw. I'm like, yeah, can you just tell me what's going on? Anyway, just crack it open. So I cracked it open and it was a fully feathered embryo inside the egg, complete with beak, feet, feathers. And uh, they eat that as a delicacy. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. And of course, as in a lot of um, culturally sensitive areas, the last thing you want to do is refuse food. Because it's seen as kind of, you know, you're kind of damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. The people give you this food knowing so well that you're going to look at and either vomit in front of them or you're not going to look comfortable eating it. I may find that entertaining. (laughs) (laughs) So so you've got to keep up this kind of facade of of trying to be, you know, stoic and, and stuff like that. But, oh, my God, some of this stuff that I ate there, Chris, was horrendous. Saying <laughs> that, some of the stuff that I ate there was just incredible. You know, so, some of the food over there. And a lot of these stalls would get closed down in Western worlds because of the, the you know, food safety and stuff. But over there, it's just it's how it's been done for, for decades and, and years. And it's just how they live. And the one thing I think that you take away from it and you realise quickly, and if you don't realise quickly, you won't, you won't last is you can't go imposing on them there's as you say a bit of give and take yeah you're in their territory you're in their territory but at the same time they're the ones that have asked you over so there's got to be a bit of give and take but now um yeah i think things are looking good obviously the whole coronavirus things don't great, but they're a very resilient group of people over there um, and as I say, hard working to the fore. I've never seen, I've never seen more hard working people in my life. You know, up at five in the morning, they're doing their exercises in the local park by half six. They all go to work. Um, motorbike crashes are compulsory. I've nearly killed myself twice over there on the motorbike. Um, they just brush it off. You know, oh, and mosquitoes as well. Don't go to Southeast Asia if mosquitoes don't agree with you. I'm still covered in scars. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, my my work was doing concert series, um, uh, kind of large outdoor shows, indoor shows. Uh, and, and it really worked. And it obviously worked because they keep asking me to come back. So um, I'm due to go back over there in December to do a special show at Christmas um, but yeah a, a place that I'll always remember because that's where I went met my wife um, I know she's not Vietnamese she's Russian <laughs> so international you're, so, you're a oh, man oh, of yeah. history you know for, for, for a man that didn't want to leave the leave home uh, or leave his country uh, up until the age of 31 it, it certainly uh, I've, I've kind of I've worn the t-shirt to death now in a very short space of time. 
<laughs> but I think now I really do want to just kind of calm it down, you know. After um, four years there, what what led you to retreat to Brussels? Well, no, I went from Vietnam back to Dubai after vowing that I would never go back to Dubai. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, but I went to Dubai this time as a freelancer. And okay. really, you, you know, um, started earning big money there. Um, started getting in with quite a few people and doing some really big shows, um, shows for the government. Um, as I say, we did the 42nd anniversary of the UAE, um, which was a massive, spectacular kind of thing. Um, kind of co-assisted on the 43rd, which was a really funny story about that, which I can cover in about five minutes. Um, and, and just doing other, other stuff. But the, again, it was a, it was a monetary thing. Um, Got it. The, the, my my not wife at the time, we decided to leave Vietnam and, and go where the money was to save up and, and really kind of buckle down, settle down and, and, and live the life. And I said, well, the best way to do that is to go to Dubai for like a year or so, save up and, and just get out and go, go elsewhere. And she, she was up for that and, and she hated it at first because Dubai is a very unique place. Um, it's almost like a large Disneyland, you know. It's it's essentially fake. It's a fake place, you know. The beaches are fake, which yeah. is quite to try and get your head round the fact that the beach is fake because they imported the sand from Egypt. When Dubai is sand, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, it is quite hard to get your head round, and really. Outside of working, the only things you can do are, are go for a desert safari or something. I'm not a, I'm not the type of chap to be hanging around the mall. It's not. It doesn't excite me in any way. Um, well, it's hard to deny that everything's fake when you're skiing in Dubai. Well, I've got to hold my hands up and say that's where I learned to snowboard. <laughs> be, being from Scotland. And being from Edinburgh, which has got the Cairngorms, a two-hour drive north of Edinburgh. And it took me until the age of, you know, 30, 34, 35, to get a snowboard on, on my feet and go snowboarding in a fake ski slope. It kind of, it speaks volumes about the country as a whole. Um, but again, you know, a lot of the people you meet there, I think... The population of Dubai or the United Arab Emirates is seventy percent, seventy percent expats. Locals only number about thirty percent of the to total population. So it's a very strange country to be in. Um, Work-wise, though, you can't get much more different than Vietnam. <laughs> you know, all the best kit, big shows. You know, they throw money at shows over in Dubai. Yeah. Um, and. I think it was good in a way because it kind of grounded you again, you know, from going from Western to Eastern and back to kind of Middle Eastern. <laughs> um, there was, it was, it was nice to be able to play with all the new big toys and stuff, but I got bored really quick. Um, you're just throwing gear at, at things to make things bigger. Yeah. You're, you're just throwing gear at things to make things better. And a lot of the, a lot of the, 
designs that were happening from other people were just they were just throwing gear at this throwing gear at shows for the sake of throwing gear at it. And it's just like, right, okay, but do you actually add any value to it? Um I kind of liken it to the whole Sharpie revolution that happened a few years ago where every show for three or four years had Sharpies on it and in massive numbers or some kind of beam light in massive numbers. And it's like, right, you know, there's still profiles, washes, you know, there's loads of other effects out there. You know, and if I want to see you painting thin lines in, in the air, then fine, great. But I get, you know, I'm one of these that I get really, really bored at the same look over and over and over and over again. And that style of, you know, that kind of small beam light gave you the same look over and over and over and over again. Um, one show could be likened to another quite easily. So <clears throat> Dubai was good to get the toys, but again, I got really bored because most of the shows that we were doing were corporate. Um, I remember one show that I was doing for um, a really big company out there who I love, love to work with. Um, but I probably got the short end of the stick because I think what they must have done was put a hat in the office and then put all the names of the jobs in the hat and then pulled one out and went, right, he's working on this, he's working on that. I ended up working on elevator conference and that was when I kind of went, right, okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> Have you ever been behind a desk, Chris, doing a corporate show where you've kind of just felt yourself drifting off? Oh, yeah. And you oh, yeah. felt the eyelids getting heavier and heavier and heavier and the company that was doing the work for at the time are not the kind of company that you want to fall asleep at the wheel for. Um, okay. And that's kind of when I went, right, <laughs> need to change something here. Um, so yeah, I was in Dubai for just under two years. And then I got offered a job. I applied for a job in Belgium at a design house there and got accepted. Um, that was ACT? That was ACT, yeah. ACT, yeah. Not not the same um, as the ACT in North America, but a, a different ACT. Not not the same in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. Um, but uh, and and that was a, a drama in itself as well. I mean, uh, the the day I was meant to originally be flying from Dubai to Brussels, I postponed because I had to I had to take care of some stuff before I left. And I postponed it maybe two or three times. And the third time I postponed it, I postponed it at night, phoned the airline, postponed it at night, and then went to bed, woke up in the morning, and I had my wife, <clears throat> well, soon-to-be wife, was back in Russia visiting her family. And she had, I, wo I woke up to the phone ringing, and it was her, and she went, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, why wouldn't it be? She said, have you not seen the news? I went, no. Turned on the news. And yeah, I, I I seem to have lady luck on my side sometimes. The flight that I was meant to be getting arrived one hour after the terrorists blew up Brussels Airport. So wow, yeah. So and and it wasn't a sixth sense. I just I had to get stuff done. Um. So postponed the flight, and then obviously that happened. Um, but I had some like 140 messages on the phone from various people going, "Are you okay? Are you okay?" Because they knew I was meant to be flying that morning from uh, 
Dubai to Brussels. So, as I say, it's just, uh, it's funny how things work out. It sounds like your golden horseshoe is good for you worldwide. <laughs> yeah, well, the golden horseshoe is getting a bit rusty just now, so we need to uh, we need to reevaluate what's going on there. But yeah, um, travel has its, you know, that kind of travel has its ups and its downs. As I say, I didn't start touring until four years ago uh, with Sir Tom Jones, uh, and we're always on a bloody plane. Um, what's his touring schedule like um, quite grueling actually Um, and quite grueling for him as well I mean when I first started with him it was just doing the UK and the the EU tour and at the time um, he was he was fine Um, but he was limping now and again Um, I was like all right, okay cool and and Sir Tom is he's the man's a machine, an absolute machine. It's his 80th birthday in June. Uh, we usually tour kind of in two or three month stints, um, and the shows are literally one after another. It's very rare that you get a, a break of two days in between a show. It's usually show in one city, then a show in another and then maybe a day off, and then I'll show in a, a city. And, and we can kind of get away with doing that in the UK and the EU because we fly in a, a, a private 737. So okay. all the band are on, the, all the band are on, all the crew are on. The instruments get put in the hold, and then we just do the usual, and we do um, you know local production at some of the shows. Um, and we were meant to tour America in 2018. And then it got cancelled at the last minute. And it was it was kind of, we were all in the darkest to why. And it turned out he'd, he'd had a new hit. <laughs> um, <laughs> that'll do it. Yeah, so that'll do it. So we did the, the no, 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 that was in 2017. So we were meant to do EU and then we were meant to do the American tour in the fall, around about October, I think. And then it got cancelled. He got his new hit. And then that got rescheduled to 2018. Um, 2018 was was a hard one, as was 2019, because we basically did America, 20 days off, and then we started doing Europe. Um, and it's, you know, a lot of the people out there are like, oh, yeah, but you're on a private jet. Well, yeah, but that private jet means that the guys know that we can load out a venue straight to the airport fly to the next city or venue, arrive at three, four in the morning, get up at nine and do it all over again. Yeah. So, you know, the, the whole, oh, but you must see loads of different places. No, we don't. Uh, <laughs> we, it's we, not we a don't. private jet out of luxury. It's a private jet out of necessity. Yeah, it's pretty luxurious inside, but it's necessity. Um, and I think, I mean, this is the only thing that I would say that I, that I think, people should really think about is touring schedules nowadays seem to be getting a little bit crazy. And I know it's because they're trying to make as much money and pay wages and stuff, but I know quite a few people that are burnt out just after doing a three-month tour and they need two months to recover. 
And it never used to be like that. You know, I've never, you know, as I say, I only started tooling three, four years ago, but I still have friends in the industry. And they're just saying nowadays it's 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 really full on. It's a very full on kind of calendar that you've got to that you've got to keep. Um and and that kind of brings up the whole mental health situation as well. You know, it's it's really coming to the fore now. People are getting mentally burnt out. Um <clears throat> and it's it's just seems to be a trend that's happening, a worrying trend that's happening yeah. in the industry just now. Um I mean I'm yeah. fucking I'm not chewing the walls or eating the furniture, but um I know a lot of people that have really had the energy sapped out of them lately. Um which is which is not good. It's really not good. I would imagine it's even tougher as a as a diabetic. I would imagine you have to be constantly monitoring your. your <clears throat> I'm not too strength. bad. I'm, listen, I'm diabetic through probably my own fault. Um, you know, it's uh, our life is not the healthiest to start with. Whenever you're doing work, even in the corporate setting or the touring setting, you're grabbing food at really ridiculous times. You're having a munch on the tour bus at two in the morning, or you know, we, we our our employment doesn't kind of fit in with a healthy lifestyle. If you see what I mean. No, if you do have a healthy uh, rare and exotic places. They're always trying to tell you, "Wow, well, well, you're in you're in Philadelphia. You got to have a cheesesteak. Yeah, you're in, you're in Boston. You got to have a lobster roll covered in butter." Yeah, and it's. A lot of the times I felt, a lot of the times I found myself just eating for the sake of eating because I yep. thought my body needed food to keep me going, whereas it just didn't. So, you know, getting diabetes was was probably a lot of it just down to my own not really taking care of myself. Um, it was a warning shot saying, hey, uh, some, some red flags are coming up. Yeah, well, you know, my father's got diabetes. Uh, so it was kind of on the horizon that I was going to get diabetes anyway but it's type 2 diabetes which is just due to, really due to diet and the way that you take care of yourself so one other thing I would say to people out there is for God's sakes take care of yourselves you know, mm-hmm. in a dietary sense um, you know it kind of started when I was in Vietnam where I would sweat a lot and I thought that's just because I don't like the heat but the doctor said I could have had diabetes for five or six years and just not noticed. Just kind of signed it off as being kind of unhealthy and, and, you know, not exercising a lot. Saying that when I was in Vietnam, I lost a bucket load of weight um, and looked a lot healthier. And then when I went back into the Western society, back to Dubai, where it is literally American restaurants everywhere. Right. You know, um, and then went to Brussels, which is the home of the French fry and beer. <laughs> um, so, yeah, health, mental health and physical health on the road or in the industry as a whole is, is really paramount and really important to try and keep on top of, um, which I found to my cost. Um, you know, I don't want to be on tablets for the rest of my life. And I certainly don't want to be sticking needles in me as I go on in the years. So. We'll just see how the new diet and stuff works out. But it's definitely, um, 
touring nowadays and just the, the stuff that, that we're asked to do can really take out, you know, um, can really take it out of you. Um, it sounds like you are more than prepared for anything that anybody throws at you. It sounds like you are ready to to jump and bounce to go to wherever you need to in the entire world. I think we all have to be like that, though. Yeah. Um, certainly, certainly in uh, the conditions that we have now. I mean, the minute that any kind of ban gets lifted, there's going to be such an influx, such an influx of people that are vying for the same job. And I think that's that is going to really set some people apart from the other from the rest. Um, <clears throat> troubling times, but we'll get through it. Um, you know, coronavirus isn't going to go away, uh, and even the economic situation isn't going to go go away anytime soon either. So it's just batting down the hatches and trying to bash on with it. Um, what else can you do? You know, um, if you're in a city like mine where it's quarantined and locked down, I can't go out and just do another job because I can't get out to have an interview or I can't go out to actually do the bloody job. So we're just going to have to hunker down and, and, and try and support each other really to, to try and get it done. But yeah. yeah, when it comes back, it is going to be a last second, like, hey, now, like I need you and a hundred of your it's, friends tomorrow. I think it's really going to be like the pilot shortage after 9-11. Yep. I think it's going to be like that. Um, it's it's really kind of... I think people just have to prepare to stop whatever they're doing, get their clothes on, pack a bag, and go wherever they're needed. Yep. Um, I think it's very much along, along those lines. But again, it's... you know, As I say, I'm, I'm kind of late to the whole travelling thing definitely late to the whole traveling thing i never thought i would be doing this kind of stuff from the age of 32 and i'm now 40 and i've still got itchy feet now and again it's not like i've got a travel bug i'm just kind of like mm, i need another challenge but i think as designers we're certainly i can get easily bored <clears throat> um i need something to fire the mind constantly and barcelona has probably been one of the only cities so far where I've, I've kind of went, <clears throat> well, I can walk out the door, 10 minutes walk, and I'm, I'm in the centre of Gothic, the Gothic quarter where there's a mix of old Gothic architecture and shiny, lovely, amazingly built skyscrapers. Uh, so, yeah. That it's, sounds it's inspiring. It is. And, I, and I, I kind of said after Dubai, I said to the wife, I went, we need to go somewhere where I'm constantly kind of the mind is fired and the, the, the creative juices are flowing quite easily. And you can easily do that in Barcelona. Some of the sunsets here are insane. Um, you know, right on the Mediterranean, if the clouds are just right and the atmospheric conditions are just right. And you kind of look at, up at the sky and you go, how the hell can I get that colour on an ME2 colour palette? You know, or a... You know, what's the RGB values of that sky right there? <laughs> well, Julian, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's really nice to talk about uh, all the world travel while we're both sitting in our pajamas in self-isolation. I, I really appreciated you taking the time to hang out with me for a little bit. This is, it's not, I feel like this is the best we can do is just sit and uh, continue. Oh, hold on tight and buckle in, guys. I mean, it's, yeah. it's not going to go away anytime soon, so... 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure you're going to be doing a lot more of these podcasts. (laughs) This is a great time to get caught up on everything. So, definitely, definitely, chap. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. No problem. No problem, Chris. Absolutely. I look forward to doing this again. Yeah, for sure. Take care, man. Thank you.